Well, we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon that's been given ever. And it was preached by the most famous person who's ever lived. And not only that, but it is the most captivating description of what life should be like of all time. As we've been going through it, I hope that if you've been here with us, I hope that your heart has been stirred a little bit with that picture of what life could look like. Jesus was standing before the people declaring, this is what the kingdom of God, this is what the kingdom of Jesus is like. And it, if you listen to his words, it captures the imagination. What would it be like if, if mankind wasn't ruled by our anger and our lust? What would it look like? What would our homes look like if we weren't ruled by our anger and by our lust? What would our neighborhoods look like if we weren't ruled by our anger and our lust? What would our world stage look like right now as the, we stand perhaps on the precipice of a war that we have no idea who it will pull in and what it will do? As we stand on that precipice, think of what the world would look like if we weren't ruled by anger and by lust. What would it look like for us and for our world if, if we remained faithful to those that we loved? When we pledged ourselves to those that we are in a covenant relationship with, if we actually stayed faithful in those relationships? If in our marriages, in our families, in our, our, our households, in our relationships, our friendships, what if those that we pledge ourselves to, yes, I love you and I will be with you, I will be your friend, I will be your husband, I will be your father, I'll be your child, I'll be, I will be faithful to you. What if we actually stayed faithful to those that we love? What kind of, what kind of relationships will we have? What kind of, what, kind of, what kind of assurance would our children have as they grew up in those kind of households and that kind of community? What would it look like if we didn't retaliate to those who have done us wrong? And not only that, what would it look like if we actually, from our soul of who we are, actually not, didn't just didn't re retaliate to those who do us wrong? What if we actually loved those that consider themselves our enemy? What would it look like if mankind didn't serve and worship money? How would that change things? How would that change the issues of poverty and injustice that we see around us? How would it change the gross inequality that we see across the world and even in our own neighborhoods? You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't just giving a description of the way that things should be. He's describing what is. He's saying, this is the way that you guys should go and live a better life, now go do this. He says, look, I am the king that's returning to a broken world who I created, a, a world that I created to be under my rule and reign. You guys have gone in rebellion against me and see what you've got. But now I am returning to establish my righteous rule and reign and this is what my kingdom is like. Jesus is declaring, this is what life is like under my rule and my reign. And we see it contrasted with the world system that we live in, don't we? Just as we go through that little list. This is what it's like to live surrendered to Jesus' rule and to his way. Why? Because this is what Jesus is like. Jesus is the one who doesn't retaliate to those who consider themselves his enemy. 
Jesus is the one who, oh, he, though he owns the cattle on the thousand hill and though he owns everything that is created, you see that he shares it freely with those who deserve it and those who don't. He, the rain comes upon and falls upon the just and the unjust. Those who are sinners and saint alike see the beautiful sunrise and the sunset. So last week we saw that Jesus told us not to store up treasure on earth, but to store it up in heaven. And he also said that we can't serve God and money at the same time. Which means that we will be, we will be serving one of those two. You're either serving God or you're serving money. And now he gets to this passage, verses 25 of Matthew chapter 6. And he begins it by saying, therefore, or for that reason, for that reason, therefore, because you can't serve God and money and because you shouldn't be storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, because of that, for that reason, he says, therefore, don't be anxious about your life. And we need to hear that, don't we? Hear that this morning, just before we get into anything else. Hear Jesus say to you, don't be anxious about your life. Now, some of you, that comes as an encouragement, and some of you, you already feel more anxious because he gave you that statement. I was like, what do I do with that? Anxiety has been a growing issue in the U.S. for some time now. Even before 2020, we know what happened in 2020, the, the number of people who dealt regularly with anxiety was continually rising from year to year. In 2019, nearly one out of 10 Americans said they dealt with anxiety issues at least once a month. That's one out of 10 people. That's a pretty big number. It was already the, the biggest uh, mental health issue in the country. And that's in a country that is incredibly wealthy and has seen incredible technological advancements, things that you would think would quell our anxieties and our fears. The issues of what am I gonna eat today or what clothes am I gonna put on or where am I gonna stay, what am I gonna drink? Most of us aren't dealing with those crisis level issues day to day and yet one out of 10 of us were already dealing with anxiety before 2020. But you know what's happened since then? It's kind of shocking. From, 2020, from, 19, from 2019 to the year 2021, the, that number of people who experienced monthly issues of anxiety quadrupled from nearly one in 10 to about 40% of Americans deal with a serious issue of anxiety at least once a month. The jump was even bigger than we would expect it to be. And so it was interesting as I was studying this week in the past week and a half. So for this, for this passage, um, for the sermon, you know, the, a lot of the commentators that I were reading were, were highlighting the difference between the, the audience that would have heard Jesus's message and the Western audiences today. And they said, all right, you have to understand that you may not be worried about where your, your food and where your clothing and where your drink is going to come from today or even tomorrow. But these are people who this is constantly on their mind. These are poor Jewish peasants, mostly, that Jesus is preaching to. And they would have be, been wondering and worried and full of anxiousness about what will I eat? Or what will my kids eat today or tomorrow? What will we put on their backs today or tomorrow to wear? What will they, what will they drink? And the assumption there in the commentators I was reading was, well, we can't really relate as Westerners. But yet we still see, though we have 
wealth in abundance. Though most of us in this room aren't worried about where our food or drink or clothing are going to come from today or even tomorrow, yet we see anxiety and fear and worry skyrocketing in our midst. Most of us aren't worried about whether we'll have food or drink or clothing tomorrow, but we sure are anxious about it. We're anxious about what kind of food we'll have. We're anxious about what kind of clothing we'll have. We're anxious about what kind of drink we'll have. Plus, we're anxious about a million other things, about life and death. We're anxious about health. We're anxious about sickness, disease, and pandemics. We're anxious about our wealth or our lack thereof. Some of you are like, wealth, I don't even understand what that is. I'm talking about the money that you may or may not have, the money that I may or may not have. We're anxious about the economy. We're anxious about politics. We're anxious about our reputation. We're anxious about our friendships or the lack of thereof. We're anxious about our love life. We're anxious about our marriages or lack thereof. We're anxious about our children or lack thereof. And some of you even feel it right now while I'm talking. Some of you feel it, well, if you don't now, you'll feel it at some point in the sermon that that dull yet ever-present dread that's always in the back of your mind. That sharp pain in your chest, that shortness of breath, that tightness of breath. Most of us in this room have much by any historical and worldwide standard. But it's not solved our anxiousness. Anxiousness and anxiety is not solved by having a lot of money in your bank account or a lot of food in your pantry. You might be a prepper and you might be stored up for the next 30 years in case something happens, but it's yet it still doesn't quell that anxiety, does it? It's not quelled our fears. It's not quieted our worrisome hearts. We are an anxious people. Wealth and possessions don't cure anxiety, and Americans today are proof of that truth. So if our system of life is producing great wealth and technological advances, if, it's, if that's not alleviating our anxiety, if that is seeming to cause a rise in anxiety, doesn't that tell us that our system is broken? And so Jesus steps in and says to our hearts, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Did you hear that? First statement again that I keep repeating, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. The first thing that stands out about that statement to us is that it's a command. Jesus, the Lord of all, speaks to his people. By the way, this is a message to his people, and he says, do not be 
anxious. He tells us that we shouldn't be anxious. And this is why he tells us, he says, life under his rule breeds contentedness, not anxiousness. He gives us a command, don't be anxious. And anytime the Lord gives a command, there is a supply from him to complete that command. He doesn't say don't be anxious, so therefore leave here and go try to fill your barns and do whatever you have to do in order to have enough for tomorrow. He says, don't be anxious. And the next thing that should come to our minds is, well then give me what I need in order not to be anxious. It's a command, but it's also an invitation to us in order to not be anxious. Jesus addresses anxiety because he knows that we are full of it. When you hear, don't be anxious, it's an invitation to leave your life of anxiousness and anxiety and worry and come to the the one who can cure that for you. It's a command, but yet it's an invitation into him. He isn't saying only only those who aren't anxious can come into my kingdom. He's saying all those who are anxious are invited to come to me and to find help. Don't be anxious. A command and a promise. And he says, don't be anxious about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What he's saying there is he's saying that you have a life and you have a body and you didn't make yourself have either of those things. It's a gift of God. You didn't give yourself life. You didn't make yourself a human being. You were just popped out of somebody at some point and boom, you existed. You had no control over that. And he says, if he... God of all creation who created you and made you into a being, into a person, gave you a body and gave you life, and those are gifts from him, wouldn't he also give you what you need for your life and for your body to actually survive? And then he says this, he says, here's what I've got to say more. Look at the birds and the flowers. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Some of you gave, actually remembered and you gave flowers on February 14th. And some of those flowers are looking pretty gnarly at this point, and some of them, may, maybe you're good with them, and they still look pretty decent in your house. God created those flowers to be beautiful. We can practice horticulture, and we can breed, and we can do all the different things, but yet we cannot create a flower from nothing. Only God can do that. He clothed them in their own beauty. And he says, look at this. He says, the birds and the, these flowers, the things that they have in common is they can't produce anything. Yes, the birds hunt. The birds find seed or they hunt insects. They, they have to do something in order to eat, but they cannot produce anything. They have no farms where they're growing feed for themselves. They have no insect farm where they're growing food for themselves and their kids. 
The flowers can do nothing, can literally do nothing to clothe themselves. And yet they find all that they need provided from a hidden hand that created all things and still holds it together. And he says, if that's true, aren't you more valuable than that sparrow or that dying rose in that vase in your bedroom? And the answer is yes. Psalm 8, 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. In the beginning, it said that God looked at all creation. He said, let us make mankind in our image. And in his image, he formed us. If he created you in the, planted in you and put the thumbprint upon you of the image of God, if he has looked down and is mindful of you and has considered you a little lower than the angels of the heavenly beings, how much more will he not care for those who are his? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers. He cares for you more than they. He says in verse 27, and by which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? He touches here on the, the really the, the, the lack of logic that is involved in anxiety. And I know, just hold on. The lack of logic that is involved in anxiety. He says if you are anxious, if you worry, it can't really accomplish anything. You can't add a single moment, a single hour to your life. You might be anxious that you are short. You can't add a single inch to your height. You might be anxious that you are poor. We really have very little control over these things. You might work hard and amass a wealth, but, wealth are, but fortunes come and go in the moment, in a blink of an eye. Our worry and our anxiety accomplishes very little, he tells us. And then he tells us this, for those of us who are prone to worry, so those of us who are racked with anxiety and find an, 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 an anxiousness in our life, which by the way is all of us, he says this to us. He says, oh, you of little faith. There's a tie between faith or belief and our anxiety. Then he says again, don't be anxious. For the Gentiles, verse 32, for the Gentiles or those who are outside of God's kingdom, outside of God's family, the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He doesn't say, hey, you don't need them. Forget about them. He says, the heavenly father knows that you need them. But the Gentiles are the ones who seek after these things. That word seek there is a word of desire. It's, it's the picture there in the, in the, the original language is, a, is a, a drive, a desire. is to strive after or to require something or to demand something. He says, that is the life 
purpose, the life ambition of those who are outside of God's community, outside of God's family, they are the ones who are racked with a drive and a desire and ambition for food and drink and clothing. That is what they drive for. And he says, don't be anxious. Why, why would Jesus even address our anxiety? Why would he talk about our anxiousness and our worry? What, is it, what does it matter if we worry or not? Those of us who are believers in Christ, those of us who are a part of his family, those of us who call God Father, what, is, what does it even matter if we are racked with anxiety or we struggle with anxiousness? It matters because our anxiety is a product. The, the problem isn't the anxiety. The problem that, that Jesus is getting at here, you see that when he talked about striving and seeking our, our, what our passion is, what our ambition is, what we seek after, because our anxiety is a product of a deeper problem. What are our causes for anxiety? One, I think, is a fear of uncertainty, right? I don't know what will happen. I don't know what will happen today. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. I don't know what will happen with this particular situation. Maybe, maybe your job, you always felt that it was secure and all of a sudden something happened. There are some layoffs or there's some issues and all of a sudden you don't feel quite so secure anymore. There's some uncertainty there. Maybe you always thought, I'm going to be married by the time I'm 25 and now you're well, well past 25 and you're looking around and there's uncertainty there. Maybe you're always sure, my children will walk with the Lord. And now there's uncertainty there. Maybe you thought, hey, just like most of us when you're young, like I am six foot tall and bulletproof, bring it on. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and there's pain there and soreness. Or you get a call from the doctor and there's an issue or that pain won't go away or that issue keeps bothering you over every single day. And there's uncertainty. I don't know where this is going and it causes anxiety. The, what else causes the anxiety is not just uncertainty, it's the, a sense that we need to provide for our own uncertainty. That's where the anxiousness comes in. It's not just, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and therefore, I've got to do something to make this happen. And whenever you feel that you can't get it done, then you, are, you feel over and over again that sense of churning anxiety in your heart and your soul. A troubled mind, a troubled heart, a tightness of breath, a waking up in the middle of the night, that pressure that pushes in on you. And the reason that is, is because we believe, we believe, we tend to believe that we can provide our own certainty in a world that seems uncertain, in a world where I feel like I've got to do something, we buy into the lie that I can provide for my own uncertainty. That I can stop, I can hold things together. I, you ever feel in life like that? You ever seen that, that scene from Spider-Man where he's holding the two sides of the ship together and he's barely able to do that? You ever feel like you're doing that in life? Well, we do that when we buy into the lie that we actually can hold it together. 
Jesus tells us that really at the core of that, that fear of uncertainty, that need to provide for our own certainty and buy into the lie that we can provide that certainty, Jesus tells us there really are two sources for our anxiousness. And the first one is misplaced trust. Did you hear that in the passage? All the language he's talking about, but your father, your father knows that you have these needs and he cares for you more, way more than the lilies of the field or the sparrows of the air. You are made in his image. If you are a child of God, you are a blood-bought son or daughter of the most high God. That is where we should be placing our faith and our trust instead of in ourselves. Anxiety isn't caused by having a lack, a lack of certainty or a lack of resources or a lack of what it is that we're, we're concerned or fearful about. Anxiety is caused by not believing that someone greater is in control of your life and your needs. I'm going to say that again. Anxiety is caused by not believing that someone greater is in control of your life and your needs. By believing that he, there is someone greater and he doesn't care, or there is someone who cares for you and he's not that much greater. And so therefore, you've got to reach over and clutch and hold. Do you remember what it was like when your parent taught you to drive? There's always that that one parent that it's not a great situation when they're teaching us, right? There's their anxiousness beside you makes you more anxious and they keep trying to reach over and grab the steering wheel or even reach over and try to grab the, the brakes, reaching past you to press the brake or press the accelerator, they're telling you to do this. Like we oftentimes are sitting there beside God who is actually in control, but we feel that we can't really trust him. And so we're consistently reaching over to try to control for him. And that breathes more and more anxiety on our part. Anxiety is caused by thinking that you or someone else who isn't up to the task is in control. or the fear that really nobody is. You know, the core of that is unbelief. It's an unbelief that either God is great or that he cares, but both. That God is the almighty creator, God, and he's your father. Hear that, believer, hear that to your soul. If that is true, if God is the almighty creator God and he's your father, if he committed himself to your salvation by sending his son as a man, if he committed himself to your salvation so that that son stood between the father's wrath and you to bear it upon himself, if, if, he, placed, if he placed that kind of love and care upon you, so not only that, but he went after you personally when you were dead in your trespasses and sins when you were running far from him and he pulled you and drew, drew you to himself. If that God is your father and he is by that powerful and that caring and that loving, then that should maybe over time, but it should be 
pushing away outside of us the anxiety and the fear that we are constantly trying to reach over and grab the steering wheel. At the core of our anxiety is a, is a misplaced trust. It's a lack of surrender to a benevolent or good heavenly father who alone knows all things and alone has the ability to truly care lovingly for you and for everyone else that you care about. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. We, we talk and we pray once a week and he was talking about dealing with uh, this issue with his, with his kids. And it was about trust. And, and he, he told me, I, I keep feeling this, this temptation to try to protect God for my kids. I, I, we need to trust God as a family and I want to get my family to, to pray for this thing. But I also feel like, man, I, I don't want to have my kids like really jump because what if God doesn't answer? Well, he will. He may not answer the way that we want, but your good and loving heavenly father will care for you and me like he cares for way more than he cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Because you know what? Those lilies die and those birds pass away. But he has pledged himself to you and to your good for eternity. Jesus Christ was pierced that you would be provided for. He was betrayed so that you could trust him. And he rose again so that you could believe that he will hold you no matter what it looks like today or tomorrow. We have misplaced trust that breeds anxiety and we have misplaced drive or ambition that breeds anxiety. Wait, did you hear that part where he says, this is what the Gentiles seek or strive or desire or press for? Why is that messed up? Is it wrong to have food and clothing and drink? Is it wrong to have the other list of things that we were talking about? No, but when we're, our, we ourselves are driving, striving for those things, they're self-focused, aren't they? I want what I think I need, when I think I need it, and the way that I think I need it. But he said, instead, did you get that? Instead, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We all have a drive. Human beings, that's what, part of what makes human beings human beings. We all have a drive. We all have a desire. We all have an ambition that stirs within us. It's something that gets us up in the morning, that keeps us going. And the reason we have that, have that is because we were made for the drive of our lives to be to worship God and to enjoy him forever. 
to worship God, to place him as the center and the focus of our life. And then the, all the things that he's created, the way that he's created me, the things that he's created around me, the good things of, that, are, that make up earth, the relationships that we have, he's made all those things to be things that I enjoy in ways that turn around and glorify and worship him, but that, that realize that he is the fountainhead of all that is good. And if I turn that to myself to please and drive a drive and desire to please and satisfy myself, it becomes self-focused and it breaks down. We ignored the greatest thing. We turned to the lesser things, the created things. We turned them into tools for our own kingdom. And you know what happens when we do that? They poison us and then they crumble. Dual death. And we strive and seek and try to find for ourselves the, the assurance and the certainty for, our, for all that we think that we need, for all the things that we actually do need. When we make ourselves the, the, the center of that, the provider and the center for that, then they poison us and then they crumble. What's the cure for anxiety? What cures anxiety and anxiousness? I'll say, first of all, we're thankful for the common grace of, of therapy and medicine. God has given mankind wisdom. And that wisdom has been used by people to create methods of therapy and medicine, and we're thankful for those. Yet when we see the deep-rooted cause of our anxiety, unbelief, lack of trust, a drive and a, a seeking after and a striving after, a self-centeredness, when we see that those are the deep-rooted causes of our anxiety, we see that those methods, they can help us deal with anxiety, but they can't cure it. Most of our methods that we try to use to solve our own anxiety, to relieve our anxiety, revolve around changing the things that make us anxious, reordering or mastering our surroundings, and learning to cope with what we can't change. But those things are insufficient to deal with the heart of the problem. I, the, the heart of the problem is I want to bring the world around me into alignment with me rather than bringing myself into alignment with the king and his kingdom. Did you get that? But rather seek first his kingdom, his rule and reign and his righteousness. And then what? Then all these things will be added to you. The cure for anxiety is predicated on us being able to call God, the almighty God, Father, and being fully invested in his kingdom, running after him and his righteousness, running after his rule and his reign. In other words, we get God and his kingdom, and then we get everything else. But until you see another kingdom from your, than your own we're seeking, you'll continue to seek your own. Until you see another ruler who's greater than yourself, you'll continue to try and rule your own world. So here's the cure for anxiety. I'm not saying it'll cure in a moment or even today, but here is the cure. I know this is what Jesus is saying is the cure for anxiety, is to look around and see who is worthy to revolve all of my life around. What is actually worthy to seek 
And we look around and we see the one who preached this message, the son of God, who put aside his glory. He, if you will, unclothed himself with his glory so that, and he clothed himself with humanity. He was stripped then and put on a cross so that you and I could be clothed. He thirsted on that cross so that you and I could drink living water from him. His body was broken so that you may eat of his bread and never thirst again. Look to him. Christian, look to him. To find him, the one who bled for you, the one who died for you, the one who ever lives and pleads for you, the one who is risen today as the, but yet still as the ever bleeding son, a lamb of God before the throne of God, showcasing his scars for you. That is the one who is worthy. Do you hear that? The language of heaven when we open the book of Revelation, who is worthy to open the scroll? It's him because he alone did what you and I could not do. He loved you when you were unloving. He cared for you when you didn't care for him. He died for you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Believer, look to him. Would he not clothe you? Would he not care for you? Would he not provide for you? Would he not assure you and keep you in his hands forever? And he is the almighty God. We already seen the end of the book. He wins. He conquers hell and the grave. No one can stand against him, not Satan, not his minions, no one, he alone for eternity, year after year, eon after eon, he alone stands enthroned in glory and splendor. The angels worship him. The seraphim bow down before him in their gloriousness that no one can look upon, yet they cover their eyes and say, no one can look upon him, he is worthy, he alone is worthy. Why would I think that I should be able to provide for myself? Why should I think I should be the center of my own universe? Man, doesn't it make sense then that to seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness, then all, everything will be added. But you know what? We need very little when we got that. You know what we will have? I don't know how much you're going to have on your plate tomorrow. I don't know how much you're going to have in your bank account next week. I don't know what's going to happen with our economy. I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I have no idea. But here's what I know. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth is going to make us a dinner. He's going to spread out a banquet. He's going to pour us wine. He's going to, he is going to pour all that for us. He's going to put a plate before you and you will never hunger again and you will thirst no more. Neither will you shed a tear. If you're here and you can't call God father, why would you wait? He alone is worthy. Why protect your own lordship and your own kingship? Why hedge your bets one more day? And Christian, 
In a moment, I'm going to open the front for you to come and take just a little wafer and a tiny little cup. But in that wafer is the great mystery that your Savior, the Lamb of God, was broken for you. And in that cup is the truth, his covenant to you. This is my blood poured out for the remission of your sins. And this little wafer and this little cup is a tiny little down payment on that banquet that we're going to have spread out before us by his own hands. Come and take and take it like it's a feast. And drink that cup like it's a big old cup of wine in the new heaven and the new earth. And let your heart be merry and let your heart sing for joy today. Because he said, don't be anxious. Because I got you. There'll be two stations of your believer in Christ come forward. Father in heaven, glory be to you. For you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. We can't cure ourselves from anxiety, but we sure can look to you who alone is worthy and we have our affections turned to you so that we seek and strive after you and your kingdom and your righteousness. Oh God, forgive us for our misplaced trust. Forgive us for our misplaced drive and ambition. God, make us a people who are so focused on you that we feel day by day, moment by moment, the poison of anxiety begin to fall off of us like a garment that doesn't fit us anymore because we know who's got us is the one who has eternity. Stir our hearts to worship you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.